Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America. We're here to amplify and humanize the experience of immigrants in the United States. Be sure to subscribe. We are available on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Again, be sure to subscribe so that you do not miss an episode. Today we have for you Valerie Howell Itzel. Valerie, also known as Valeria, is a Mm -hmm. third-generation Panamanian. She was born in the province of Colón, which is a port city of the Atlantic coast of the Isthmus of Panama. She is the proud descendant of Jamaicans and Barbadians or Bayesians who came to Panama and built the Panama Canal. (laughs) In Panama, she was raised primarily by her loving grandparents while her mother worked in New York City, saving up to bring Valerie and her sister to the States, as they used to say. Valerie immigrated to the United States in 1978 and grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn. As a child, she dreamed of becoming an educator or an attorney. She attended A. Philip Randolph High School in Harlem, then went on to earn her BA in political science in Spanish from SUNY Binghamton. After 12 years as a high school teacher, she was admitted to New York Law School, eventually earning her Juris Doctorate. Valerie also completed a master's in educational leadership from Teachers College at Columbia University. Valerie strives to stay connected to her Caribbean and West Indian Panamanian roots by dedicating time to the efforts of the Caribbean American Lawyers Association and the Pan-Caribbean Sankofa Project. The Pan-Caribbean Sankofa Project is particularly dear to her heart as its mission is to preserve and share the history and legacy of West Indians in Panama. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you. Thank you so much, Simone. It's great to have you here on the podcast. Thank I you. Want, I wondered if you have anything additional to add to your bio and um, about your life uh, in current state. Um, well, yes, I just wanted to add um, if people are, some people are familiar or maybe not so familiar with, um, you know, how we grew up in Panama. Um, people are always um, a little confused about how it is that we're Black, but we speak Spanish and we're Caribbean. And yeah, so um, my family, growing up in Panama, in Colón in particular, we were part of an enclave, right? So we were like the West Indian enclave, the West Indians who settled in Panama after um, a lot went back home after um, the canal was built. And there's a whole story behind that. But just to let people know that we settled in mostly in Colón. And we spoke mostly English in church, at home, um, amongst each other. And then we switched to Spanish when we went to school or we had to go to the grocery store, the supermarket. Um, So we were able to um, 
you know, pivot back and forth between English and Spanish, between the West Indian heritage and now our new, um, I guess, Panamanian or Hispanic heritage. So it was a very um, interesting upbringing. And, um, you know, as Simone mentioned in my bio as well, I was, I grew up mostly with my grandparents, my, my formative years with my grandparents, as many immigrants do when their parents come to the United States to um, start building here. And um, growing up with my grandparents was definitely a pivotal part in my life and my upbringing. And um, yeah, and I grew up also in a very tight um, West Indian elder community in Panama since my grandparents were um, the ones who were raising me. So I learned a lot from that insular community of elders, which I, I've always, I'll never forget. Right, very interesting. And that's, I think that's quite popular throughout the Caribbean too, for children to be um, cared for by their grandparents as well, whether, you know, some families immigrate as well as others may travel throughout the Caribbean, as well as, you know, people who are going off to work as well. Grandparents are very involved in the, in the lives of their grandchildren. Very much so. Yeah. So what is, can you share a bit about your arrival story? I know you said your mom was here working to bring you. How did, how did that all come together? Right. So my mom was, is four, is the oldest of four um, children. And she was, I think, the third to come to the United States, the third girl to come to the United States. And she ended up, she came here in 1973 and she quickly found a job working for a family, a white doctor with his and his family in New Jersey. And what she did, she worked as a living maid, as was very popular for many Caribbean um, women to do. And she started working with them, I believe, in July of 73. And by November 73, she tells me that the family had basically decided to sponsor her so that she could get her um, papers, um, get her residency. So that actually moved along pretty quickly at that time. And by 1976, she already had her, um, her she had her papers, so-called, and she went back home to Panama to begin the paperwork for us. She got an attorney and that's what she was working for to pay for the attorney. Um, and then we came along in 1978. So it moved pretty quickly within about a five-year period, which we know now takes much, much longer. And there is not even that I know of um, where you can get sponsored uh, by employers. But that was something that um, a lot of the Caribbeans and Hispanic um, women did in particular back then. Um, so we came in 78, my sister and I, and we came here to Brooklyn. And we were living in Brownsville. And at that time, 1978, Brownsville was pretty much, you, there was the height of the drug pandemic, right? Back then, of course, they didn't call it pandemic, but I'm calling mm, it pandemic. Okay, right. <laughs> right? So we, we came to Brownsville and um, we stayed there for two months because my mom was like, nope, can't raise her kids over here with all this that's going on. And we moved to East Flatbush. Um, and at that time, East Flatbush was becoming increasingly like like the Caribbean enclave, right, of, of Brooklyn. Um, you, we had Trinidadians, Haitians, um, Guyanese, Jamaicans, Panamanians. We were all now moving more to East Flatbush. We were able to find in the supermarkets and Caribbean markets the foods that we ate and, um, and just kind of live amongst each other. And East Flatbush also, um, there were still white people living there and, um, and then a lot of African-Americans were living there. So it was a very interesting community. But within that, we still had 
you know, the largely Caribbean community that we started to like share and live amongst each other. Um, so that was the beginning of my story. Um, something interesting I mentioned about um, African-Americans when we first came here, um, we found that there was some animosity amongst African-Americans towards the West Indians and Caribbeans. Mm. And I, you know, in retrospect, I, I understood better. I think a lot of that came from how African-Americans, Black Americans who were born in the United States were treated in the history of that. Yeah. And they kind of took it out on us. Like, you're coming here, you're taking our jobs, you're doing this. But I don't think that they understood, right, and no fault of their own, that we were coming here because of things, similar situations that our parents and grandparents were experiencing back home, right? Also as a result of racism and classism and, and you know, all of the isms. So they didn't realize that. So they kind of like took it out on us. And for a long time, you know, as a child, I was very introspective and I would notice these things and um, it bothered me, right? And yeah. by the time I got to college, I started to write more and I started to do performance poetry. And one of the poem that I had written, and this was in 1990, my first year of college, um, yes. I started getting into performance poetry and spoken word. And this is a poem that I wrote called Immigrant, the Welcome Mat Was Facing Down. And it talks about that situation between the rift between African-Americans and West Indian Black Blacks. Um, so I don't, if you will indulge me in a few minutes, I can. Sure, <laughs> I would love to hear it. Okay, Please. let me see if I can get my, my little West Indian accent. Yeah, your juice is flowing. You tell me I come off the banana boat, but I know the truth. Brandish flight 825 window seat, not the wing neither. You tell me Harry Belafonte is my daddy and Mama Montego is my mommy, but I know the truth. Sparrow is my Calypso dad, and Celia Cruz is my salsa mama. You then change my name from Ivy, Maria, Hazel, Janet, Ilka, Tabitha to one you prefer. You call me cassava, mango, platano, island monkey, Nazi dread, picking in coconut. You laugh in my face when I open my mouth to defend myself, because you say mayonnaise, and I say mayonnaise. You say three, and I say tree. You wait for me after school with your little fool, fool friends and throw stone and buckle upon me. You sing your national anthem to me. Oh, how sweet it sounds. Rejects, they cost $1.99. Rejects, they feel so fine. But I know the truth. My feet are warm, my belly's full, my head is strong. You tell me you see my mommy by the river washing my dirty clothes. But I know the truth. At least my mommy ain't no whore. Then I wondered to myself, what your mommy doing right about now? You don't let me play ball. You don't let me play rope. You tell me to go climb a tree for tonight's supper. But I know the truth. Tonight, I'm going to have some aki and saltfish, cuckoo and mackerel, arroz con habichuelas, green banana with bakes, and some sweet, sweet sorrow to wash it all down. You give me subliminal hints. What was wrong with your country? Why don't you people go back home? You people are taking away all our jobs. But I know the truth. My mommy cleaned a white family house for five years. My daddy leave home at five in the morning to get to the shipyards for eight. I know the truth. My mommy tell them all through face social worker, we don't need no public assistance and slam the door in your face. I go to school every day. In the winter, I wear my brown plaid coat, my red and yellow hat, and my navy blue scarf and mitten set. You call me rainbow bright, colorama. You take me for a poppy show. But I know the truth. 
I want to study and I want to learn about everything and everybody because I don't ever want to call nobody monkey, platano, mango, coconut, nati dread, picking in because I know the truth. Come 10 to 15 years later, you jam in to what you used to call my music and skin up your face. Reggae, salsa, merengue, calypso, mambuleo, but I know the truth. You twist your tongue to release my twang. You're not really Jamaican, Haitian, Trinidadian, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Asian, Antigua, Panamanian, Dominican, Costa Rican, Cuban, or Brazilian. I know the truth. You are African. Tu eres africana. I am African. Yo soy africana. You see me walking down the road. You think I've changed. You don't hear my accent. My hair is pressed. My clothes are coordinated. But I know the truth. I play the game. Survival. Hypocrisy. You say I should feel shame. But it's you, my sister, my brethren, who are to blame for refusing to realize we are all the same. You see, I know the truth. Here I come and I want to go home. Whoa, <laughs> that is very profound. Thank and to you. think that you wrote that, what? Um, 30 some odd years ago. <laughs> yes. And those yeah. same issues are still going on because might I say, I literally had a conversation last two weeks ago with someone who I'll be interviewing today later at three o'clock. Uh-huh. And um, I, I said to her, I feel traumatized and I didn't know who to talk to about this. I'm like, I have to talk to somebody. I feel traumatized between, with my relationship with what I would think are people from my mother country, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't quite know how to, I didn't know how to explain it. I just know I feel traumatized. Right. So, oh my gosh, that is so deep. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I hope things have improved. You've been here so. a while and, and you saw the yeah. stuff. And yeah, have yeah. they changed for you? Yes, yes, definitely. I think there's been a lot of, um, you know, as I say, towards the end, people started embracing um, the music. You know, Bob Marley definitely contributed to that. Bob Marley and the Wailers. People started listening to the music, started eating the food. You know, back then, if you talked about eating goat, African-Americans and all other people are like, what? You're eating what? You know, or pig's feet or cow foot soup. And now it's like, you know. People are eating that. Everybody's eating it. Everybody loves, you know, roti and and all of that and and beans and peas. And so I've definitely seen the change. And there's also been a lot of intermarriage and interrelationships. And and now you have a, a child born of of from African American person and a Caribbean person. You can't call their child a name, you know? <laughs> right, right. So, so things things have okay. got, have improved. And yes. Um, yes. Um, I hope they continue to improve. Um, right. Wow. That was, that was amazing. I, I thank, thank you. you for sharing that with us and our audience. Thank you. You're very talented there with words. And um, okay. So, you know, getting past all of this, you realize, okay, there's some animosity, there's adversity, but you know, we know why we're here. We got business to do. So what was your American dream? You shared a little bit in your bio. And so how did that come about? What are some challenges that you face in, in uh, achieving that American dream? Right. Um, so I always, I always like to learn and read. Um, and I think 
people, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but but meeting certain people, mostly teachers, I realized I, I wanted, I started thinking that I want to become a teacher or professor. Um, I really have a big love for language, as so you, for language and um, Afro-Latino history and literature. So I was going in that direction, but I also always had this idea, this dream that I want to be a lawyer, possibly a judge. Um, because I always just felt that I had this really, this conviction for what's right and wrong and always picking up for the little guy. Even as a kid, I didn't like, I was fairly quiet, introspective, but I didn't like bullies. And if someone bullies someone, then you would hear my mouth. <laughs> so I always wanted to be like, you know, a lawyer, um, teacher. And I, when I graduated from college, I needed to, I wanted, the plan was to go to law school, but I needed to support myself. Um, so I kind of did a couple jobs here and there, and then I became a teacher, and I really enjoyed it, and I stayed doing that for 12 years, and then I said, actually, right um, after, unfortunately, the towers went down, I said, you know what, I'm not going to let this dream, you know, God forbid, this dream die with me to mm. at least go to law school and become a lawyer, so um, right after that, I applied to law school and, and, and went to law school part-time in the evening as I um, taught, you know, full classes, five, six classes a day, um, Spanish class. And then I went to law school at night and completed in four years. And um, Wow, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you got to your teaching um, dream and your um, law dream, yep. right? Yes. Awesome. 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 Um, any, any challenges in particular, um, you know, in, aside from, you know, working full time and trying to do this thing and I'm sure it wasn't easy. No, I had a lot of three hour nights. Um, it's funny because, um, they, I don't think they have this site anymore, but there was a site named, um, rateyourteacher.com or something. And yes. And over the years, I went back and looked at it. And I had, you know, I had pretty good comments always, you know, she's tough, she's this, she's that. And then in retrospect, I was like, oh, my gosh, I was so tough on these poor, these poor kids because I was like, I didn't have enough sleep. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right? You know, but yeah. And, um, you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of them. They're grown now. And we laugh about that. And I'm like, you guys didn't even know, like I was working on three hours of sleep and grading papers and reading hundreds of pages. And I was like, just going on fumes. So, but one of the challenges has always been, you know, unfortunately financial, right? So I, when I graduated from SUNY Binghamton, thank goodness, thank God, I only came out with about three thousand under $3,000 in loans, actually, because I was really um, smart about it. I worked as much as I could to pay everything. You know, I got the Pell, the tap, I got EOP. So those were definitely opportunities that I used to my advantage. And then I came, graduated, and I'm like, I don't want to go to law school and pick up another, a big old loan, and I have to, you know, survive and live. So, you know, I got into the teaching. And then after a couple of years, you get your tenure, you get vested and all that. And you're like, I can't leave this because it's like a definite thing. And um, you kind of get sucked into that. So I think that was um, the challenge for me. Um, and I think something that I should could have done and I, I tell a lot of younger people to do now is to seek out a mentor, right? Particularly yes. in the field, a mentor, um, what do they call it, a sponsor, 
and I think as a promoter or something like that, but definitely seek out a mentor. And that's something back then that wasn't talked about a lot, right? Now it's talked about a lot more. And I, I think I missed that opportunity, but um, not trying not to see it as a missed opportunity, but just a learning opportunity, right? Right, right. You weren't aware of it too. And sometimes finding the right match too can be challenging as well. Because, you know, it does take someone who wants to invest their time and um, knowledge in you and to support you that way. And sometimes it's difficult. I mean, the realities of being an immigrant in America, you know, and finding somebody who wants to um, invest in you like that is um, can be challenging at times as well. Yes, yes. And I think also back then, because there, we did not have like technology, I, when I went to college, they were just messing around with like CDOS and getting on the internet, right? So we didn't have the technology and be able to reach out to people. There was no LinkedIn, there was no social media. So how would you expand your network? So, yes. yeah, so that was like definitely one of the challenges. How do you expand your network when you don't have the means? And, and I don't, I didn't know any lawyers or judges, you know? Right. And probably back then, I'm not sure if there were cell phones were as popular for you to be able to, you no. know, yes. No. So, mm-hmm. right. I understand. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Papers um, didn't even, your, Microsoft didn't even autosave. I remember losing a paper in the, typing my paper and it didn't autosave and like, <gasps> yeah, yeah. You're like on page 10 and something happens. It disappears. You better oh. hope. You, you better. Yeah, that happened to me too. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. But the only thing, I, I went to a, a really great high school and, and they forced us to learn to type. So I was typing about 70 something words a minute. So I was able to recover. Very good. Very good. <laughs> So could you speak to opportunities that came along the way to help you, whether it was someone or a scholarship or um, anything? Um, I think more than, I was trying to think of that, like more than opportunities, I think it was people Mm -hmm. um, who guided me in a certain direction or, and, and I can, I was even thinking all the way back to, you know, my beginning story here in, in New York, like when we went, when we landed in Brownsville and, you know, we're black, we have my name, my sister's name doesn't sound as English as mine, but, you know, my Valerie Howell, you know, I'm speaking English, I'm black. They didn't think that I needed a reading and writing test to see that I really, I could speak the language, but I really couldn't write um, you know, or read that well in English because in school we read and we wrote in Spanish in Panama. Mm, wow. Yeah. So nobody thought to give us a test. And um, so we didn't go to bilingual ed. Um, I don't think I really needed it. I kind of pushed through. I think my sister would have done better with it. But then once we left Brownsville, we went to um, East Flatbush. And of course, because we're immigrants, they put us back a grade. And they put us in the quote unquote slowest classes. Um, but my opportunity came in the likes of a teacher named Miss Masters. And she realized that it was a language issue I was having. I wasn't having a cognitive issue. And she kept me and she, you know, encouraged me. She's like, read everything every day, flip through the dictionary, point to 10 words, write them down, learn the words, read every sign you see. She just encouraged me to read, 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 read. Um, and by the next year, I went to the quote unquote 
um, gifted class, right? And there I met my first African-American teacher, Ms. Powell, and she was also very encouraging. Um, so those are two definitely starting points um, in terms of people more than opportunities or people who created the opportunities. Right. Um, yeah. Supported then, you, right? Correct. Encouraged correct. and supported you. Right. Didn't give up um, on me and, and saw beyond what everybody else was seeing or yeah. wanted to see. Right. Know? And then from there, you know, I can talk about, you know, I went, I keep saying I went to a really awesome high school, Efield Randolph in high school in Harlem, which was majority black. And um, we had about 98% black and like 2% Hispanic. Our principal was um, this tough Miss Taylor. We learned about black history. We learned the black national anthem. Um, it was a, definitely a college bound school. Um, and she pushed for her kids to go to college and, and the best of the best colleges, you know, um, and SUNY Binghamton is, is the top um, state university in New York. So um, just getting an opportunity to go there was great. And of course, um, I didn't really get any scholarships, but I did um, benefit, of course, from the financial aid um, programs from the state and also from the education opportunity program. Um, and then I pretty much hustled, you know, on campus. I hustled. I was an RA, which paid for a lot of my, um, paid for my board, room and board. Um, so I didn't really get any scholarships per se, but I did get those types of opportunities um, to help at least financially. Um, law school, yeah, you had to take out loans. <laughs> <laughs> right. I also did the RA thing too in undergrad. And so that I worked as well and I was an yep. RA. Yep. And my friends would complain that I wasn't hanging out as much as I should because they were going off to parties after classes mm -hmm. and I would leave class. I was a bank teller and I would leave my job, drive to work about 15, 20 minutes away, did my hours, got, the bank would close at six. I would come back, go to, the, to the cafeteria, have my dinner, and then it was time to study. I went straight to the library or in my little study area. I would be putting in some yep. hours and then straight to bed or I would be up for hours yeah. I'd be on that cappuccino trying to stay up <laughs> just to put in those hours to get through and um you know that was my life for several years yeah. you know you just do what you needed to do and and it's I don't necessarily know that my parents ever said that that's what I needed to do but it's right. just it was just a part of me I just wanted to do well yeah. and um and I just did what I needed to so I guess yeah. You know, that was just that. I, I don't know if it's an immigrant mentality or what it is, but um, nobody ever pointed out and say, this is what you needed to do. But right. I just I came ready to do what I, I needed to do to get through college, you know? Yeah, it was it was innate to you. It was innate. So what you had. Yeah. Same thing. Very, very, sim very similar. Yeah, it was it was constant hustle, you know? <laughs> right, right. But it paid off. I mean, because I tell you, I've, I've come across people who have said to me, wow, you've only been here this short amount of time and you've done this much. Well, you know, yeah. I wasn't wasting time. Right. Yes, I understand it's, it's important to build those relationships and socialize, but I needed to do what I needed to do. I mean, I had a mixture during the summer months. I was searching for scholarships. Um, every, you know, anything I was working, I was, I was an RA. I did what I needed to do to make sure I didn't have these huge, um, 
amount of debt outside of college. So, you know, Absolutely. and um, so yeah, I, I just really believe that um, maybe my mom's spirit was with me. I learned after she passed last year that my mom had dropped out of college. She was the oldest of 12, wow. right? And she dropped out of um, school when her father died. Her father died um, like, oh my goodness, maybe 40 something years ago. And she was quite young, right? And she dropped out of school because she was the oldest and she had to help take care of her siblings. I mean, when her father died, the mom, my grandmother was pregnant with her youngest sister. So she never met her father and he had an accident and and passed away very tragically. And uh, she dropped out. And so my focus, I feel like my mom's spirit, she never said that to me. It was after she passed, her, her brother said, you know, she did this. She sacrificed a lot for us. Wow. And, um, and I, I never understood why I was so driven. Mm-hmm. But I feel like my mom, I was doing it for her because she, she didn't have the opportunity to because she had other responsibilities. Right, right. Wow. So, um, right, <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah. um, were there anything that were um, anything that was surprising to you or shocking about the American culture after coming across from Panama? Um, um, yes, I think the first thing that always comes to my mind, like Panama is very two things. So Panama is very big on it's a very nationalistic um, culture. And when I was there, our president, who mysteriously died in a plane accident, um, we he was a general from the military, and then he became president. His name was Torrios, and we he was a people's president. Like we adored him, and he really pushed nationalism, Panama for Panamanians, and he was looking out for the poor people, the indigenous people, the black people. He he's the one who signed a treaty to get the canal. He signed with Carter to get the canal back from the United States, um, the turned over to the United States in a um, certain number of years. Um, and so I kind of grew up under that era of like nationalism and pride for Panama. And, and um, then when I came here, it was like very, everybody kind of for themselves. And because it was such a melting pot, it wasn't like, I'm American, I'm American when Panama is like, you're Panamanian, you know, you, you right. the flag, you, you, everybody either, you know, how to play um, the musical national musical um, instruments or the songs, or you dance, or, you know, it was this big pride thing. And then I came here and I'm like, oh, okay. It's like every man for himself. So that was surprising. And another thing that was surprising was um, just a culture of manners. And I know you're, you're of Jamaican descent and I, I imagine Jamaica is like this too. But in Panama, like anywhere you go, it's Buenos Tardes, Buenos Dias. Even if you get into a cab, you say Buenos Tardes to the oh cab. Oh my goodness, driver. it's the same in Jamaica. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've said to, I didn't yeah. understand it. And I've said to several people, I was like, so-and-so doesn't have manners. Like, what is it? I mean, yeah. like seriously, and it would, I mean, I guess maybe it's a cultural thing. I'm, and the more I talk to people, I'm realizing, don't take it so personal. It's just the culture. But it really, for me, it was just a little bit much for me to handle at yeah. first and not understood, I'm not understanding yeah. that culture. it was just the culture, you know? Weird. Same yeah. thing. If you ever walk into a group of adults speaking and not say hello or good evening, you would have it coming. 
there's uh-huh. some sort of scolding, right? I try to instill that in my students as well. Like they come in and I'm like, Buenos Aires, Buenos Dias, you know, I'm like, don't walk up in here. Like, <laughs> you know, and the funny thing is a lot of my students are like first to second generation. A lot of them are, are Mexican or Central American. And I'm like, come on, you know, when you walk into your house and Abuelita is sitting there, there's no way you're going to walk by and not address her. So it's the same thing here. You know, and unfortunately, a lot of the other teachers don't instill that. The kids walk in and they just let them um, just start talking at them. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> no, no, you need to greet me. And and they start, you know, they start to get acclimated to that. So that was definitely a shock to me. <laughs> right, right. Anything else or those are the, that's it? Uh, um, not a shock, but challenging to me um, as I got older, and I don't know if this is a Caribbean thing or Panamanian thing, but something that I've always had to confront, and sometimes I either confront it head on or I just leave it alone, but um, I tend to find that people are dream killers, and, mm. and I think it comes from, and I don't think they do it purposely. I had to come to terms with that. I think it comes from fear. Um, you know, especially from a lot of the older family members and they kind of pass it down. And it's something that I've always had to battle with or confront. Um, you know, just a quick example, when I was getting ready, I had applied to colleges and I knew that I wanted to go away to school to have that experience. Um, and I had family members coming at me, you're going to go away, all the way up there to Binghamton or wherever, four hours away. And and I just, one time a family member, one of my aunts, I'll, I'll call out, geez, she's passed away. <laughs> she was like, you're going to go away four hours and give your mother trouble. I said, first of all, I never gave my mother trouble. And second of all, I said, hmm. So I, you brought me on a plane, like five hours across international waters, but I can't go upstate four hours? Are you serious right now? <laughs> you know, that was kind of my attitude. I was always a little rebellious and that kind of shut it down. I'm like, uh, I'm doing this right with the without you I'm doing this and I did right <laughs> the funny so. thing is that I had similar a similar experience you know because I grew up in a big family um, and nobody ever left home mm-hmm. and in 2005 I um, one of 600 uh, apl- applicants and I they chose 20 people mm-hmm. to get this fellowship and I was one of the 20 Nice. A full scholarship to go off to my master's degree, moving from Missouri to D.C. area. And I had the wow. same reaction from my family. Why are you leaving? Why are you going away? I guess maybe they were just nervous for me. But I tell you, it was the best decision I ever made. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done it any other way. It's exposed me. I have so much of a wealth of knowledge um, of the world and experience that I would not have had had I just stayed mm-hmm. at home. Yeah. Yep. And I bet you those same people come to you now asking you for help. <laughs> yes, we'll leave that alone. Right, no names, no names. But yes, it was interesting um that we were, we had similar um uh, experiences. And I guess maybe they just really wanted they were afraid. Right. Mm-hmm. Fear is, is uh a big thing, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. Um from the older people, they just want to make sure that you're okay, that you're safe. Right. And um, and so for you to be taking that big leap of stepping out and going off on your own, they were just probably nervous in this big country. Right. Yes. 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 (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it's 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 baffling because also like from my history, my heritage, my my ancestors came from Jamaica and Barbados, so they were you know brave enough. So I'm like, where did that end? <laughs> right, right. So. Maybe because the United States is such a it's a different. Um, it's such a complex world, you know, mm. it's, it's a larger country, so many different groups, and maybe they had experiences that were so quite right. different from the one they experienced in Panama. Um, it kind of scared them a bit. And I can see how that can happen, Absolutely. Um, you know, and have empathy because sometimes they don't really have that exposure to make sense of some of their experiences, you know, or the information to say, okay, Right. This is why they people behave that way towards you and so forth. And so I can I can yeah. understand why they be you know, they would have become fearful and sometimes mm-hmm. stay within their little enclaves or communities mm-hmm. because it's that's safe. their safe place. Yeah. It's safe. It's safe. Yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any advice that you would give to new residents or immigrants on how to become successful contributing residents? Or how to have a, a peaceful, abundant immigrant journey here in the United States? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, since I've been here such a long time, my 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 experience definitely different from people who are like newcomers. Um, I would definitely say don't to stay connected somehow to your heritage, to your people, get involved in something in the community, um, whether anything, just to stay connected. Um, my other advice is, and this is for anyone, but especially, you know, I would say for, for immigrants, um, use what's at your disposal. We talked about technology earlier, and like right now, as much as it can be used for for bad things, um, I would say use it for the good, and which is to educate yourself, right? As an educator, um, I try to tell, instill in my students that get them to understand you're in school for 12 years, but your life is how many years, 80, 90, maybe a hundred. So the schooling years, that's just, you know, that's formalized school where you should be getting some tools to learn how to learn, but you take that. And now with technology, like you can be so amazing. Um, There's so much out there to learn from. Um, I'm a proponent of Googling everything to learn. I'm a proponent of YouTube university, right? You get on YouTube, somebody has done it. Somebody's teaching you how to do it. Um, you don't even have to leave your house, right? So for a new immigrant, to any immigrant, don't 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 hold yourself back and say, oh, I didn't get to go to school, I didn't get to go to college, because there's a lot of stuff out there that you can still learn and just continue to be a lifelong learner, right? Don't feel any shame that you didn't finish high school back home or here. You know, you're probably working, trying to hustle, but use technology really to your advantage as much as you can and ask people questions. And if you don't get an answer in one place, you look for answers some, someplace else. I think that's my biggest giveaway. <laughs> right. What we, what I've noticed is that sometimes people are afraid to take on the loans, for example, to go off to college. Like I know a lot of people will, mm-hmm. you know, it's like natural to just go through high school, right. Mm-hmm. And get your right. um, diploma. But, um, you know, some people are afraid to take on the the loan or do whatever they need to do to go off to college. And so you find a lot of students will stop at high school. Mm -hmm. But getting getting that graduate, not graduate, but the college degree is is a a necessary step, I would say. Wouldn't you Mm -hmm. wouldn't you agree as a teacher? 
Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And the good thing now, there are a lot of programs, um, even if you if you don't feel like you like one of the, the things that I'm working with, we work with the early I work with the early college um, high school and I'm the advisory coordinator. And we're, you know, we have students who are getting the associate's degree. Right. So maybe you can start with the associate. So get a certificate. Right. And something if you know that you want to be a technician or electrician, you can get a certificate and start there. Um, so any type of advanced degree definitely, definitely opens the doors and, and puts you up a step above, right? Um, there are lots of programs. I think also um, the, the library has programs and links people to different services and programs in the community. Um, right now, also, I think because of a lot of the push for, Im um, for immigration push, um, there are a lot of programs that don't even ask about immigration status, right? Um, so you can get in and get a degree in something and they will not ask immigration status. So, but you have to definitely do your research and be careful with anyone who's trying to get you to pay for things because there's a lot of free programs out there that, um, that, you, can, that you can start your journey with. Um, just CUNY, City University of New York, if you're in New York, they have a lot of programs. They have a lot of programs for Black males. They want to get more Black males to and Hispanic males to get their degrees. So they have some um, programs as well. So um, do your research and reach out. Um, but just be careful because there are unfortunately some not very nice people out there who try to take advantage. Okay. Wow. Wow. Yes. Lots of scholarships and, and, and so forth. And I would definitely second that as well. Read, 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 right? <laughs> we, the immigrant mentality is to work, work, work. And I have found not as much reading takes place, right? They'll go and seek out help or pay somebody else to do something. But an encouragement I would add to that is to just read, read, read. There's so much information. Don't be afraid to go to the library, go online. These There's there's so much online for you to be able to find out. You can Google anything. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to just read, read, read and seek out information. We started a new segment of the show called Faux Pas. Is there mm -hmm. anything that you would say to someone? Don't say this. Don't do this. This is a no-no. Um <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, um, don't say this, don't do this. Um, I would just say, be careful with making generalizations about anyone. Um, you know, if I can, I guess I can always talk, I can talk more about um, Hispanic people, Latinos or Caribbean. And we're like, oh, all Mexicans are this, or all Panamanians are this. Like, let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> mm, right. You know, Dominicans are this and, and Trinidadians are this. Um, I I would like for us to stop doing that to each other. Um, I know they're jokes, you know, they happen jokes. Some of the jokes are really funny and the accents and things like that. And and I like that our people we can laugh at ourselves, but I would just say just be careful with that because you never know who's in the room, right? Um, so you want to be careful with that. That's that I guess would be my advice. Okay, very good. Well said. Well, thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Valerie. Thank you for having me. This was great. It. We enjoyed your poem and all of your uh, wisdom and nuggets for people to um, have a peaceful, more abundant journey here in the United States. Absolutely. There's room for all of us.
Exactly. I say there's acres of diamonds here. Um, there's so many opportunities and there is enough for all of us. All of us don't want to do the very same thing in life, right? And there's enough for everyone. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Simone. Thanks for joining us, uh, Valerie. All right. Take care. Ciao. Okay. Thank you. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.